Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. So when a patient twists their knee, hears a pop, and the knee swells, they have a 90% chance of having torn a structure that needs to be repaired, either the meniscus cartilage, the ACL, or the articular cartilage. So twist my knee, heard a pop, my knee swelled. So injuries where the tissues that are critical for the lifespan of your joint, the labrum in the shoulder, the meniscus in the knee, the ACL in the knee. When you tear these structures, it's so much better to repair them early than to let the shoulder or knee rotate in abnormal motions and develop arthritis. And so we've learned that most meniscus tears can be repaired now. They can be, the meniscus can be replaced. We do lots of meniscus replacements for both our young athletes and our athletes between 40 and 70 and even mid seventies who wanna keep running. I have a tremendous number of athletes who wanna run centuries and they come in and say, hey doc, isn't there just a new shock absorber you can put back in my knee? The surgeon took out my meniscus years ago. And yes, they have some arthritis, but they're not interested in going to a more definitive stage Step. They want to buy time. And so we do something called a bio knee where we replace their meniscus, graft their cartilage. So the answer to your question is injuries that can be repaired and save your critical structures should be done so immediately, not waiting and seeing how it goes. Mm. Injuries that are different types like tendonitis and overuse injuries. We've gotten so good at new injections now with growth factors, PRP being one of them, lubrication added to growth factors. We can stimulate healing so that things that used to take a year to recover from can be accelerated now to heal faster. Hi, I'm Pete McCall, and thank you for tuning in to this episode of the All About Fitness Podcast. That voice you just heard is the guest for this episode, Dr. Kevin Stone. Dr. Stone is an orthopedic surgeon and the founder of the Stone Clinic in Northern California who wrote a fabulous book. And I mean this. I really enjoyed going through this book and I've been getting I've gotten very lucky the last couple of episodes. If you listen to all about fitness, I've interviewed Doc Simp, Dr. Mike Simpson, I've interviewed Dr. Chad Waterbury. I've been doing I've been very lucky 
to, to get a couple really good guests. And Dr. Stone right now, talking about Play Forever, his book, this really, again, this, this was just a fun conversation. And this conversation is exactly why I started the podcast. I want to find the content. I want to find the information. I want to find the resources that can help you, my listener, learn how to use exercise to enhance your quality of life. And that's exactly what Dr. Dr. Stone writes about. His book, Play Forever, How to Recover from Injury and Thrive, comes at it from a point of view of an orthopedic surgeon. He has put together more bodies than he could probably count. And more importantly, he's kept them active and kept them healthy and fit and moving into the later years. And Dr. Dr. Stone wrote Play Forever to give you the same advice. Now, in, in all seriousness, I'm a personal trainer and a strength coach. I wrote my book, Ageless, Ageless Intensity, and that's Ageless Intensity, High Intensity Workouts to Slow the Aging Process. I wrote Ageless Intensity to give you the exercise programs and the workouts you need to slow the aging process. Play Forever by Dr. Stone. If you want the two books that can help you manage the next 20, 30, 40, whatever years of your life, I mean, yes, selfishly, I'm going to promote my book. But if you read Play Forever along with Aegis Intensity, that's it. That's all you need in order to be able to use exercise, use activity, to be able to live a long, healthy, and productive life. I go into the actual workouts that you can do. Dr. Stone in Play Forever goes really into a lot more than that. And, and you'll hear us talk about one of the, my favorite things about the book is he spends a lot of time on mindset. Why is mindset so important? Why is mental acuity, why is mental sharpness so important? Enough blathering from me. Fascinating interview with just a a fascinating person who really wrote a tremendous resource that can help you stay fit and active for as long as you want. Conversation today with Dr. Kevin Stone, the author of Play Forever, How to Recover from Injury and Thrive. Today on the All About Fitness Podcast, it is a pleasure to speak with Dr. Stone, the author of Play Forever. How are you doing today, Dr. Stone? Great. You? I am doing extremely well. So let me ask you this. I I like to ask guests this question as we get started. What got you into orthopedics? What what was your interest that that said, I want to help people fix themselves and stay healthy? (laughs) Self-interest. How do you how do you mean that? So I injured my own knee playing soccer at college at Harvard. I can remember the moment where I made the dumb mistake, the mental mistake that so many athletes make of just reaching out when you knew you shouldn't, trying to save a goal from being scored. And of course, I I tore the meniscus cartilage inside my knee that so many athletes tear. And we we Mm. can talk some more about that later on. But I admired the surgeon who took care of me. You know, he's strolling around the field house and the athletic training room, taking care of athletes. And I realized then that, gee, if I could do that and help other athletes like myself, it would be a good contribution. And, and that's, I mean, the interesting thing is medicine has evolved so much since then. But the one question I, I like asking this, because I looked at your background and looked at your resume, you, Harvard, was Harvard undergrad or was that, was that medical school for you? Harvard was undergrad. And okay. then I went down, you know, there's an expression that if you go to Harvard, you have to go to the South to learn how to be a gentleman. <laughs> and so I went from Harvard to uh, UNC, 
okay. uh, University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill for medical school. Then I went back to Harvard for internal medicine. Mm. And then I went out to Stanford for general surgery, where I saw the light, of course. <laughs> went back to Harvard, <laughs> went back to Harvard to do orthopedics, went to New York to do research, went out to Lake Tahoe to do a clinical fellowship with a guy named Richard Stedman at the time, and then came to San Francisco to start my practice. Uh, well, the question I'd like to ask that about that, I mean, we have Harvard, we have Stanford. So which are you, doctor? Are you East Coast or West Coast? I mean, that's going back a few years, the whole different thing. But what's, what's your, I mean, Boston's a great area. I lived there for a little while. And Stanford, of course, is a gorgeous, Northern California is gorgeous. But what's uh, kind of, how do you, how do you compare the two sides of the country? So at Harvard and Boston, a lot of great ideas come out of it, but none go in. And so <laughs> once you go west, uh, we have an expression that I said to my, both my daughters, who also went back to both Harvard and UNC for medical school, listen, no one's sane goes east again, hmm. yeah. at least permanently. Well, <laughs> you have to go east for education. Yeah. But once you've seen the west and once you've opened your mind to new ideas, once you've become creative about how you live and how you think, it's pretty tough to leave the west. I'm in North County, San Diego, and we've been out. We moved here from Boston. I was in Boston for two years, and two winters were enough for me. And I'm like, you know what? I'm out. But the interesting thing is, I, I always roll. I'm always questioning. Like, I've had two or three friends move back to the Boston area from San Diego, and I'm like, what are you thinking? But but talking about Boston, what I want to ask about one of the first questions I want to ask about that I think sets this up for play forever. How do you explain Tom Brady? I mean, I know he just recently retired. But when you look at somebody who's been able to, and not only Tom Brady, but Drew Brees and LeBron James, as we look at these athletes who are able to stay an extremely high-level performance since their later years, how do you explain that? It's the other way around. It's how do, how do you not explain everyone else? Mm. I mean, Tom Brady has really shown that if you're disciplined about your training, about your diet, about your attitude, if you set your mind on your goals and you don't let anything get in the way, if you keep your competitive spirit, uh, if you do things intelligently, if you avoid the mental errors, there's no reason why most of us can't live a long time playing the sports we love. So I really like to turn that question around and say, why isn't everyone following those rules? Well, what's interesting is when you look at that, so I, I played rugby for a number of years. I played rugby when I was in Boston with the, with the Irish Wolfhounds. And in the rugby community, there's a very strong ethos of men playing till their 50s and 60s. And when I was a young man, 22, 23 years old, playing in, in Santa Monica, we actually had one match where a guy came on on the pitch for in his 70s. He had just turned 70 years old. And, and you wear special shorts so you get touched, not tackled. But he wanted to say they played rugby in every decade of his life. He was British. And so he walked on the pitch for the last couple of minutes, kicked one or two whatever penalties, and that was it. You know, but... He still had that mindset. And so that's one of the things that got me interested in studying the physiology of aging and how we change as we age because you see people that, that stay focused on that. And, and the question where I'm going to go with this, and you just said mindset with Tom Brady, you, you write a book about movement and you're an orthopedic surgeon, but you start your book talking about mindset. Why, why is that? Why is mindset so important when we start talking about exercise and movement? Well, before we talk about mindset for the general population, you have to realize that rugby players, which I love caring for and I've cared for the old blues here and, and others, and rugby players have a mind-body dissociation. 
How do you mean, what do you mean by that? Mind body dissociation. There's just something different about rugby players, which is why they play a sport that's impact and contact with no pads. And but their mind, they they take a number of injuries. They they play a sport that's just fantastic, but they play it with a sometimes a ruthlessness that you just uh, are blown away by. But they recover super well from injuries. So I I love caring for them as a surgeon. They're my best patients, uh, and they're, they're a lot of fun to care for in every way. But Bring back to mind, you know, so many of the injuries that we see in orthopedics are mental errors. The mind just wasn't in the game. You weren't focused. You're distracted by your phone or your girlfriend or boyfriend or something. Just you make that momentarily momentary mental error, the poor judgment about going too fast in a turn or whatever. And so if you can decrease the number of mental errors, you dramatically decrease your number of injuries. Mm. So that's one part about mindset. The other part about mindset is just really how you look at yourself. You know, are you a, are you an athlete like Tom Brady that needs to feed themselves, control what they eat, control what they do, control how they think, control who works with them? Or do you just like to go out and be a weekend warrior and, and blow out your sport and have fun and not worry about what happens? So they form into two very different groups. Those who become really mentally focused and calm, but determined about their health and fitness, uh, just have a different life. And so, so many of the patients that I see, when they come in, a big part of my mission in life as a physician and reason I wrote the book too, and started out with mindset, is if I can convince you to look at yourself as an athlete in training and not a patient in rehab, then you can use all that wonderful time with us and our rehab team and our fitness trainers at our clinic, and you can use it to become better than you were before you got hurt. And our goal is to return you after an injury six months later or a year later, whenever it takes, fitter, faster, and stronger, which is the phrase we use, than you were before. What's interesting is a number of years ago, I attended a lecture talking about, about mindset and about preparation. And the person giving the talk was saying that before an event, before a contest, whether you're doing a 5K run or you're playing at a, at a national championship as a professional, the, the, the discussion was about if you overhype yourself, like if you listen to heavy metal music or if you, and you get over anxious, you, get, you, you, get over, you, you cause anxiety, that your performance diminishes. So after hearing that, what I started doing, doctor, was I would try to meditate and I'm still working on my meditation practice. And I stopped listening to that music. You know, I used to do as a young man, you listen to that thinking, I'm going to get pumped up. But then you realize it's much better to go into a match or a game in a much more relaxed, calm situation. What, why, what's the difference in that? How can being over-anxious lead to an injury? Well, it's well said. Um, it, it's more, and listen, there are certain athletes who really do better pumped up. It's just, can they control their thoughts and their ability to avoid error? And so if they can, in either mindset, either really amped or really calm and calculating, then it works for them. But if they can't, in either phase, if they're just, you know, too calm to pay attention or too anxious to focus and think, then that's where we see the errors. And that's, I mean, because when you think about it, that's so powerful, right? Because sometimes you overreact. And you're right, some people do get pumped up. I mean, for me personally, I found that trying to relax before an event really just, it, you get into a rhythm and you get into in, into the flow state of where you're, you're focused on, on what you're doing. 
And, and you see this in professional athletes, right? I mean, we know that if Patrick Mahomes gets the ball in his hand with 32 seconds to go, he's probably going to score. So what's one or two things, what's one or two tips you could provide for how to put yourself in that state to know that if I hand you the ball on the eight-yard line and you got 32 seconds with one timeout, that you can get it done? It, it, how can somebody get in that situation, just be relaxed and do what they need to do? Well, for Mahomes, you only needed 13 seconds, which is even more <laughs> impressive. <laughs> it's clearly practice. And so if you've never been there before, it's pretty tough to perform at that level. But on the other hand, if you put yourself in those situations a lot, if you're used to that, it's just another part of your skill set. And I think how people see that determines how the game is. So if you look at the great quarterbacks in that last two-minute drill, you know, they're really ones that just are doing what they've always done. They know how to run a hurry up offense. They know exactly where they're going. They're just, you look at them and you know, they're going to score. And that was always true of Brady. Um, very different from the young quarterbacks who just don't reflect that kind of confidence because of the lack of preparation. They just haven't been there that often. They haven't succeeded. So the other part of that is leaving errors behind. So if you look at a Steph Curry, and he misses 20 shots in a row, which he rarely ever does, but you know has a terrible few games. He keeps taking the shot. Hmm. And that ability to just have the confidence that you're, you'll come back because you've been there before is what makes all the difference in the world. And what role does visualization play in that, I mean, in terms of your mental preparation? So visualization is a really fun topic to talk about because so many athletes – um, use the tools of memorizing a course. Let's just say if you're skiing, you know, memorizing the gates, exactly how they want to do them. And for some athletes that really works well, but for other athletes, we see it really doesn't because they need to use imagination more than visualization in, to, in order to win. Meaning I've worked with a number of athletes who are awesome in their training runs. They can visualize the course. They do it just the way the coach said. And then in the event, they just don't perform at that level. So there's a degree of fantasy, a degree of imagination, a degree of creativity that you need to bring to that competition in order to really excel above everybody else. Because everyone can visualize the same route. It's just not everyone can perform. And, and let's take that. Let's take it kind of apply it to, to a real world setting because some listeners might be going, well, I don't play quarterback. I'm not, a, you know, I'm not the point guard. But does that work? Would that work? Would visualization or that kind of mental preparation, would that work for giving a board presentation or for delivering a sales pitch to a big customer? I mean, how can you put it in that context? Well, I put it not only in that context, I put it in the context of recovery from injury or recovery from surgery. You can imagine just, let me give an example. A patient coming into surgery with a smile on their face gets a better outcome. And it's been really shown. They influence the surgeon. They influence the nurse caring for them. They influence the anesthesiologist. They influence the recovery team. There's just something about that smile, that confidence that you're projecting to the people around you who are going to care for you that influences how they treat you and how they perform as well. And so that smile that you bring to whether it's your presentation to a board or that, that huge event that you're getting ramped up for that smile reflects your confidence in yourself but in your confidence in the people you're speaking to your ability to engage with them your ability to capture their thoughts your ability to deliver your ideas your ability to brainstorm with them and be creative so bringing that 
that confidence game, bringing that internal, I've been here before, I know what I want to do, I know what I want to accomplish, and I can even imagine something that just the greatest thing that could ever come out of this meeting, then that permits you to perform at these levels. I love that. I'm just thinking about that. You visualize, if you visualize that and you, you see the expectation, you see the outcome, this is the outcome I want. I've always been a little bit skeptical about manifesting, but I do think that in that context, I think that's completely appropriate. It's even appropriate if you just go to the gym and look at the picture behind you of someone you know, raising a weight over their head. When you walk into that gym, when you walk into your fitness session, pause for a minute and imagine what you really, if you had the best fitness session in your mm. entire career that day, what would it look like? And go ahead and make that happen. Rather just, oh, I'm tired. I got to get my workout done. I just got to get going here. It's a totally different outcome on which mindset you have when you walk in. As you say that, doctor, I'm thinking that, um, I'm thinking back to when I work out and if I'm going to do deadlifts or kettlebell swings, but as I'm getting warmed up and I'm doing my mobility exercises, I'm visualizing what, how much weight I'm going to pull and what it's going to feel like to pull that weight. I've just, it's something I've learned how to do over the years. Or if I'm be doing like heavy kettlebell work, I visualize as I'm warming up, going through the motion and going through the movement. Is that a good practice that somebody should adopt if they want to be able to take their workout to the next level? It's just something I've done over the years that I, I took from rugby of visualizing what I would do in rugby and just applying it to, to working out. I think it's crucial. I think you figured it out and it's probably what's made you a good athlete. I don't know if I'm good at Halloween, but it's relatively injury-free. Now, real quick, for the logo, for, lis- for listeners for my logo, I took that from Charlie's Angels. Uh, the logo is actually copied from Charlie's Angels. What I try to do is I try to appeal to listeners over the age of 35. I'll be 50 this year, doctor. So I'm trying to appeal to listeners over the age of 35 who want to use uh, fitness to, to slow down aging. In fact, this is my book that came out last year, Age Ageless Intensity. That's why I was so excited to see your book because you're, I'm coming at it from a personal trainer point of view right you're an orthopedic surgeon if people buy both of our books they are set for life i mean i mean that. <laughs> that's what i got from that right because you cover things you're going into depth that, that i don't touch because that's not my specialty so the fun of it is they have to just not buy it they have to read it and then they have to think about it so <laughs> play forever which is the title of the book um is meant to inspire it's it's really meant to cause you to think about things, to do things a little differently, and to think about how to recover from injury and then how to thrive. So my goal for the people I, I write a book for or I care for in my practice, how do I help them drop it at 100 doing the activity, playing the sport they love? And that's, I mean, the fascinating thing is what we're, you have people like David Sinclair out of, out of Harvard talking about exp- extending the lifespan to 140, 150 and beyond. What are your thoughts about that in terms of, and look, and I mean, from a structural integrity point of view, right? I mean, would it be possible, because I know Sinclair and there are other researchers that are really looking at that from a structural point of view, do you think it's possible that we could project forward to 140, 150 years? It's a hugely hot topic. And, uh, and the reason why it's a hot topic is because, is that a good idea? Number yeah. one, society can't afford you. Number two, your kids can't afford you. Number three, while you may get some of your systems working, other systems won't. And so uh, the idea of all of you aging that well is a very unlikely long off concept. But the idea of you aging well until age 100 and living well and living fit 
is right here today within your grasp. And that's why it's so important to do the right things. And, and I want to transition a little bit to this because one of the things that fascinated me was a person that you worked with who's now become very well known in the fitness industry. How'd you get connected to Kelly Starrett and, and what, what role have you guys, how have you guys collaborated? Uh, we were Kelly's first job as a physical therapist. So we were able to train him there. Uh, and he clearly had come out of the early CrossFit days, where which we were associated with as well through one of our patients, a wonderful fitness trainer named Eva Tordokens. And so we were introduced to the idea that, number one, fitness had about 10 general principles and, and, and could be achieved in a very different way. And that you could group it and make it competitive for group workouts in a way that would help people achieve levels that they hadn't done before. And that we could then apply those that thinking to our pre-op and post-operative patients. And so that was pretty novel. That's where our association with Kelly started. And then uh, he uh, moved off to just do full-time at CrossFit, which was turned out to be quite successful for him. And and that's and I just thought, I thought that was a very interesting the, the fact that you guys had collaborated together and he's gone on um, to do I mean he's done great things and so it's great to know that he was mentored or, or learned under you yeah. and applied that so when we look at that if we look at and, and I don't like look I don't like knocking any mode of exercise because you can get injured walking right you can get injured doing anything CrossFit happens to have a high volume what are some of the most common exercise injuries that you see in your practice. And what are way? What are one or two? And this is a huge question. But one or two? What are one or two of the most common exercise injuries you see coming from the gym in your practice? I'll start with that before I go to the second part. <laughs> well, since you started with CrossFit, probably the box jump drives more patients into our practice than any other specific CrossFit activity, just because so many people aren't quite prepared for the total dynamic aspects of that, including agility and coordination and flexibility. And so, I think. You know, errors occur in the gym often from lack of mobility, as Kelly made a big deal about, and I think was correct. So from most of the errors that we'll see, whether it's an overuse activity, repetitively doing a bad exercise, like a leg extension exercise, you know, there's no sport that any of us ever play where you need power and leg extension. Everything we do is a is a flexion, you know, squat exercise that which is really so much more useful for all the sports we love to play. So a wall sit, another one that drives patients into our office, you know, there's just never, do you see in any athletic activities, somebody sitting against a wall in a, in a static position. So we're so much more about encouraging people to do dynamic exercises using all of their body and using, you know, combining fitness and balance and reception with muscle strengthening as well. So, to, you know, it's really those types of errors that we see more commonly than anything else. Well, I, I, but I love that about the box jump because I can't tell you that when I watch somebody, he, the, the biggest risk of injury, and this is for listeners, the biggest risk of injury is jumping down backwards, which to me is the most stupid and asinine thing anybody could ever do because why would you jump backwards off a of 24, 30, whatever it is. I just see people up and down, up and down, up and down. And, and the whole point of plyometric exercise, if I'm mistaken, I might be mistaken. If I am, please correct me. But the whole point of a plyometric exercise is to be as explosive as possible for one or maybe two reps. Because in no activity, even if you look at volleyball or basketball, where they're going to go up to, for a shot and go up for the rebound, 
in any sport activity, you're only going to do one or two explosive movements at a time before you transition into a next phase of the game. So I, that's, that's what's always boggled my mind. And it's like I'm just waiting. I mean, I, when I see people doing that, I just want I cringe, absolutely cringe. Is that the – I mean, I, I know it's tough to, to dial in the mechanism of injury, but is that the primary mechanism of injury is people jumping backwards when they should just be stepping down, jump up, step down. There's no reason you have to do a million reps in 20 seconds. So it's a great piece of advice, and it's really well thought through. But unfortunately, I also see them bang their patellar tendons on the edge of the box, right. <laughs> <laughs> and they and they often miss as well on uh, with their feet, and so we see foot injuries uh, as well. So, the box jump, uh, you know, good referral source for orthopedic surgeons, but I'm not so sure it's the best exercise. <laughs> <laughs> well, and it's interesting. I think I told you, I'm now the director of education for a health club company. And my whole approach for years for exercise programming has been movement-based. Let's hinge, let's push, let's pull, let's carry, let's let's move, right? And I'm starting to educate these trainers and they're like, it's blowing their mind because they're so used to like the bodybuilding approach to isolation. Okay, we're going to do isolation exercises. What is the difference? Why would it be so important to focus on integrated patterns as opposed to those isolated movements? Because you only have so much time to exercise. And so you're so much more efficient with your time. If you've got a half hour, if you've got an hour, if you've got two hours, what do you, whatever you have, just think about in every exercise that you're doing, how can you get more out of that exercise? And so if you really insist on doing a biceps curl, you know, do it on an unstable ball or a BOSU ball or an unstable surface. So you're constantly using all your body's proprioceptive exercise, your all your micro, micro motions throughout the feet and legs while you're doing that simple biceps curl. So it's a really simple example of how do you take any exercise that's important to you uh, and combine it and make it a much more efficient exercise for your whole body. No, I, I love that because I, I've, I've done that for years. If I'm going to have people do biceps curls, let's balance on one leg. Let's get a little bit because you're only using one or two. Exactly. Or, yeah. or alternate. If you, and For listeners, if you want to make the bicep curl a much more interesting exercise, balance on one leg and alternate your arms. Do one arm, you know, alternate your arms one arm at a time. All of a sudden, you've changed the entire dynamic of the exercise. It's a great example. And, and to do that. So let's talk a little bit about, about some injuries called muscle imbalances. Because in the fitness industry, one of the things we've done for years is teach personal trainers that if we have a muscle imbalance, it could cause an injury. So can you explain what a muscle imbalance is and how that, how that applies to, to the average person? And, and keep in mind that a lot of my listeners are, but I have listeners that are both fitness professionals and average consumers and fitness enthusiasts. So muscle imbalances, what role do muscle imbalances play and should we pay attention to whether or not we have those imbalances? So we can give two major examples, I think. If you think about around the knee joint, if you're only strengthening the quad and not strengthening your hamstrings, uh, which is surprisingly happens more often than you might think, then you don't have that coordination and flexion. And so for a ski racer in particular, if they've unfortunately had their hamstrings taken as part of an ACL surgery, they lose a tremendous amount of flexion, coordination, and hold on the edge. Mm. Or relative to their ACL, they way overload their ACL by having too strong a quad relative to the hamstring strength. And so the knee is imbalanced and the strain on the various ligaments is changed. In the shoulder, another great example, the shoulder goes through a complex range of motion. 
And if your supraspinatus is strong, but your infraspinatus is weak, those muscles are working hard to control the rotation of the humerus within the glenoid socket. And so we see impingement, we see inflammation in the shoulder. And when we test the athlete, we often find they're very strong in one or two directions in one or two muscle groups, but not in the others. So think through your exercise and how you think about the joint and the muscles that you're exercising and think about how to do combined exercises. Well, that brings up the concept of how important is it to, ch- I mean, the paradox of exercise is that we need some consistency for adaptation, yet we also need some variability because the body craves variability and different forces coming into it. So in, in your, based on your experience, what's a good recommendation for how often we should change our exercise pro- programs and the actual exercises we do during the workout? So let me change that a little bit because what I counsel patients is to pick a new sport every six months. Mm. And that doesn't mean they have to give up their key sport. It just means add something. So you can add something new that you might just do for six months, then drop it and replace it with something else as your extra sport. So, you know, if you love being a runner, throwing and cycling or swimming or working out the gym or whatever you want to do, just throw that in for six months and then throw in something else for another six months. Number one, it works all the other muscles that you haven't been thinking about. It works your head, so you start thinking about sport in a different way. It makes you a better, more well-rounded athlete. It helps diminish the overload injuries. Well, and I was gonna ask, what about the cognitive? I mean, the whole, because you're gonna be developing new neural patterns, new motor pathways. What about the cognitive benefits of picking up a new activity? Oh, huge, of course, because you have to think in order to avoid injury. (laughs) well it goes back to mindset right because that's right but 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 the thing is i love that and i was thinking uh, i'll ask another question in a second because so often we have this concept of mind body exercise meaning we're in the yoga studio as i do a tree pose and we go "Mm." but really in all reality doctor any exercise like walking or getting up out of a chair isn't it truly isn't any activity a mind body exercise You wouldn't believe how many meniscus cartilage injuries we see from people getting out of a car. Hmm. And so they twist getting out of the car and rotate abnormally on their knee and tear their meniscus. And so every exercise or every activity as simple as getting out of a car. If you just thought about it in terms of rotating your body and were stabilized before you stepped up on your knee, we wouldn't see those injuries. So yes. And then now to ask a little bit about surgery, when should somebody, when, obviously if there's trauma, the specific trauma, you need to reattach a muscle that needs to happen. But when would somebody know that surgery is a good idea? And when should somebody avoid, try to avoid surgery and do the physical therapy route? So when a patient twists their knee, hears a pop and the knee swells, they have a 90% chance of having torn a structure that needs to be repaired, either the meniscus cartilage, the ACL, or the articular cartilage. So twist my knee, hurt a pop, my knee swelled. So injuries where the tissues that are critical for the lifespan of your joint, the labrum in the shoulder, the meniscus in the knee, the ACL in the knee, when you tear these structures, it's so much better to repair them early than to let the shoulder or knee 
rotate in abnormal motions and develop arthritis. And so we've learned that most meniscus tears can be repaired now. They can be, the meniscus can be replaced. We do lots of meniscus replacements for both our young athletes and our athletes between 40 and 70 and even mid seventies who want to keep running. I have a tremendous number of athletes who want to run centuries and they come in and say, Hey doc, isn't there just a new shock absorber you can put back in my knee? The surgeon took out my meniscus years ago. And yes, they have some arthritis, but they're not interested in going to a more definitive step. They want to buy time. And so we do something called a bio knee where we replace their meniscus graft, their cartilage. So the answer to your question is injuries that can be repaired and save your critical structures should be done so immediately, not waiting and seeing how it goes. Mm. Injuries that are different types like tendonitis and overuse injuries, We've gotten so good at new injections now with growth factors, PRP being one of them, lubrication added to growth factors. We can stimulate healing so that things that used to take a year to recover from can be accelerated now to heal faster. And that was one of the things I thought was fascinating about your book. You go into detail on some of those technologies that are coming out. What's going to, I mean, how's that going to change? We talked about aging, but what are some of these techniques that people could use to restore function to joints or restore function of muscles. You mentioned PRP. What, what is, if you could go into detail on what that is? Sure. So the, in your blood, you have things called platelets that uh, help stop bleeding is one function, but they also carry a tremendous number of growth factors. Mm. And we can take the patient's own blood, spin it in a centrifuge, get those platelets, induce them to release all those growth factors. And what the growth factors do are, are multiple things. Number one, they stimulate local tissue healing. Number two, and maybe most important, they recruit the billions of stem cells that everybody has within their own body. And they recruit those cells to produce progenitor cells. Those progenitor cells go to the site of injury and they modulate the repair process. And so we've learned that we don't have to inject stem cells anymore. We can inject growth factors and cytokines that induce your body to release their own billions of cells to that site of injury. So What's happened is we're using these factors now to accelerate healing. Why does it take a year to come back from an Achilles injury or an ACL rupture? It shouldn't. We can do things to accelerate that healing. And so it's a big part of what I call the anabolic era of sports medicine, where we've learned that we can diminish the degradative effects of rest or inactivity. We can stimulate healing. We can treat arthritis by replacing these tissues and stimulate healing of the damaged surfaces. Now, now you mentioned you work with skiers, and, and it brings to mind, and you're talking, we're talking about blood. Have you worked with uh, Dr. Jim Strait Gunderson out of Park City? I have not worked with him directly. Okay, but yeah, because I, I interviewed him a while ago, and he's a big proponent of blood flow restriction. What do you? Because that sounds like blood. The benefits of blood flow restriction, and I, I interviewed Dr. Jeremy Lenicky a number of months ago. We talked about that because it sounds like some of the benefits of BFR is very similar to what you're describing with this treatment. There are similar benefits. However, we still are concerned about BFR and the potential for forming blood clots. You know, almost nowhere in medicine do we limit blood flow and then release blood flow. It's sort of not a physiologic activity that we would normally do. And so we still have a fair amount of concerns about restriction, restriction of blood flow. Um, however, the idea is to overload the damaged tissues with a rush of growth factors, and that may be one way to do it. Uh, other ways of doing our simple massage therapy and mechanical stimulation of the cells induces them to release growth factors. Uh, Theraguns, you know, impaction therapy also is another good way. 
Well, I was just about to ask about percussion guns because I, I work with the team at Nimble, which is a percussion gun. Are those – what role should – if somebody's – let me ask you this question. If somebody is in their 40s and 50s and very active, should they, should they invest in something like a percussion gun, and how would that benefit them? Yeah, we think it's uh, it's a you know we're huge fans of manual physical therapy done by really well trained therapists and trainers, and we have a group of them in our office who are the best. And but they can get in deeper with a Theragun type uh, device, and the patient can do it on their own when they go home. So it helps us extend our therapy window uh, for the patient to be able to do it home. Well, and, that, and, that's, and that's the whole idea, right? I mean, for years, we've told people to buy foam rollers so they can foam roll at home. Whether or not they're doing that, that, you know, they might be doing it. The, the, the Theraguns and the, and the percussion guns seem to be a little bit more functional, and also they feel pretty good. But what are some other techniques like that? I mean, right? I mean, because that's like a self-massage. Yep. I totally agree. And so what are one or two other techniques that, that people could do? Let's, let's kind of shift towards recovery a little bit because we're talking about exercise. We're talking about injury. What are some recovery techniques that we can do after a workout to ensure that we don't get injured in the next workout? The most important part is motion. And so if you're getting swelling at all, if you're getting limitation in motion from a joint or a muscle, doing the massage things, doing the icing and heating, <clears throat> excuse me, icing and heating things that help loosen up the athlete after the workout in addition to before the workout I think diminishes the injury and prepares you for your next workout better than just hoping the stiffness will all go away. Yeah, that's it. You know, it's funny because, yeah, I mean, it'd be nice if I had the massage therapist here, if I had the nutritionist here and I had all that. And what role, and that's where I'm going to go. The next question is what role does nutrition play in the healing process or in, in the whole injury cycle, right? Is there a way that we could look at nutrition to support healing if I've had surgery going through physical therapy, are there things that I could eat? Is there, and I know you're not a nutrition expert, but I didn't know if you could touch on this. Is there anything in that, in that realm that we could do in terms of diet? And I guess where I'm, where I'm thinking about this is collagen proteins, right? Because that's been a big, it's just been a big trend. And one of the things I wanted to ask you was about is our collagen proteins, do they work? And is that something we should be adding to our diet just to keep the tissues healthy? So the way to answer the diet questions is that we, we think that a bad diet is pretty easy for people to identify. <clears throat> Good diets for them really vary widely, where some athletes do great on one kind and other athlete does great on another kind. We think that in general, protein loading, which is collagen, protein loading, um, balancing protein and water as your primary intake foods are your best approach to a simplistic way to think about your diet. Hmm. And most athletes trying to build muscle need more protein, less carbohydrate and less fat. And so if you can think about that way in just a sort of a simplistic way of, you know, what are you putting in your body? If you're putting in lean protein and you're drinking mostly water, you're probably have a pretty good diet. And that's a really simplistic way to think about how do I stay healthy? How do I build muscle? No, I like that. It, it, for, for listeners, I'm cycling back and forth. I got a coffee cup here, and I got a water, I got a water jug here, and I go back and forth. And, and going back to rugby, doctor, I used to, when, with our rugby clubs, when we go to a, a multi-day tournament, I'd always I'd, I'd play the role of the strength coach, too, with the clubs. I'd always tell the fellas, look, if we're going out at night and we got a match tomorrow, pint for pint. If you have a pint of beer, you have a pint of water. You know, try to get them into that mindset because lack of hydration – 
that's a great, and I didn't even think about that. What role does lack of hydration play in, is, does lack of hydration play a role mechanism of injury? And I'm thinking about tissue, uh, like tensile strength. If we get dehydrated, does that affect our tissues at all? So it affects every tissue in the body, starting with the brain. So the brain, you know, works much better when you're well hydrated mm. and the body tries to conserve brain hydration. So if you're dehydrated, you're pulling water away from other tissues in order to keep the brain happy. So mm. water matters. Hydration matters tremendously. And I think people are generally underhydrated. Just as you mentioned, we tell people glass of water before they lift the fork, glass of water in between every alcoholic beverage. Uh, make water your main beverage. And if you do that, you'll probably diminish a lot of the sugar that you get from so many other beverages and drinks. And, and let's stay on brain for a second, because one of the things I thought, one of the threads I thought was so interesting in your book is competitiveness. What role, why should we, we be looking, what, what role does competitiveness play and why, why is that a good thing? How can it be a positive or benefit for us? So if you... Look at the sections in the book on competitiveness. You know, you can think about people like Katie Ledecky that we mentioned, and you can look at other parenting techniques. And I think you can teach competitiveness in a healthy way to young athletes. And I think that there's been a little bit of a lack of um, skills in teaching what is healthy competitiveness? How do you teach an athlete? How do you teach a young person? How do you teach even an older person who's starting to enter into sport? What does it mean to be competitive? How can you improve your own performance by using competitiveness to excel? And I think CrossFit, in a sense, did a good job of that early on by using group workouts that were posted on the wall and everybody could see how everyone was doing. And all of a sudden, you people who went to the gym on their own were suddenly elevating their game because they were being seen, their scores were being seen by everybody. And so I think we can teach a healthy level of competitiveness at all ages. And I think it helps you become a better athlete. It helps you become fitter. It helps you want to succeed. It helps you want to live longer and play better, which is why Play Forever <laughs> was written. Well, yeah, that's what we want to be able to do. And, and so what can we do? What are one or two things? I know you, you go into this in a little more detail, but what are one or two things? Because like I, I have my, my two daughters are seven and nine and my younger daughter, unfortunately, I'm, I'm, we're trying to rein back in her competitiveness. She'll push her older daughter out of the way. She'll push my older daughter, her older sister out of the way to do things. So we're trying to tamper down her competitiveness. But what's what, what are one or two things we could try to do to encourage kids to go out there and give it their best effort? And also what I like is, you talk about get, do away with the participation trophies. Why is learning how to lose a good thing? So first thing on competitiveness and relative to your own kids, um, there's a difference between competitiveness and aggression. Mm. And you can teach a young kid to about what competitiveness in winning means. And it doesn't always mean aggression. Tactics matter. Approach matters. Thinking about it matters. Strategizing matters. Competitiveness means a lot of things more than just aggression. And I think the better we get at thinking that through and coaching our kids and coaching our older athletes as well, the more fun they have. Because all of a sudden it's a chess game rather than just a, a brute match. Well, you say that. I'm smiling, doctor, because it brings back a number of years ago I played a tournament, a rugby tournament, and our, our team, we were, in, we were in an open division, and our, but our team was mostly guys over the age of 35. But we've been playing rugby for maybe 20 years. You know, a lot of us have been playing rugby a long time. And we played, we were in Florida, we played the Florida Collegiate 22, uh, U22 All-Stars, 
right? These were college kids, 20, 20. It was like the, the best college players in, in Florida, but we beat them. And it was specifically because of tactics. We knew how to move the ball around the pitch. These guys were younger and fitter by far than us. It's also like playing a military team. If you play a Marine Corps team, you know you're in for a battle, but all you got to do is play tactics and you're going to, you, you end up winning the match. So I think that's a good idea it, it, to be able to teach the kids tactics because that in the long term, tactics and strategy are what pay off. Now, you also mentioned grit. What is grit and how can we develop grit either in ourselves or in our kids? So when you think about what does it take to get in a pool like Katie Ledecky does, which was the example I used for grit, and power your way through the water in what's a very lonely sport in a very difficult way over and over and over again. So what does it mean to not let the pain or the boredom or the exhaustion stop you from doing what you want to do? How do you take those feelings and say, I see them, I recognize them, or in the old Buddhist tradition, you can have pain but not suffer from it. And how do you turn that into building your skill set? And that's really what grit is, the ability to recognize the pain, recognize the aggravation, and use it. And I think you can teach that. And you can teach it to kids, you can teach it to older folks as well. You can teach it to patients recovering from surgery. Yes, you're gonna have pain, but we've got a huge amount of source resources here to get to diminish that pain, both preemptively and if you have it, and we can use it to help you move through your rehab program. Well, why can pain, you know, thinking about pain, a lot of people, they wanna avoid pain, obviously we do. We don't wanna ever be in pain. But, but how can pain be a good thing? How can we use pain for our benefit and, and learn from it as opposed to try to hide from it and avoid it? So let me give you a simple example of that. If you're using a spin bike, a Peloton or any other bike, never ride it watching TV or reading a book. Because what it means is you're not listening to where your body is hitting its walls, where, where your muscles are sore, where they're painful, where you're out of breath, where your heart rate is. If you can listen to your body and feel those limits and then push beyond them just a little bit, you're gonna improve your training out of every session that you ever get on that spin bike. So turn off the TV, turn off the bike, listen. Music is fine because it helps you get in that mindset but focus on where you are. Use your feelings of muscle pain, of muscle soreness in order to improve. Well, and again, I teach this to personal trainers when I do education courses. Our job as a personal trainer is to help our clients be comfortable being uncomfortable. You know, pain is different. We want to avoid pain, but use, I, I love the fact that you, re you reference discomfort because what does discomfort cause? What does discomfort mean? Well, in working out, it means you're getting to your limits that you want to get past, and that's what's so important. Yeah, so we want a little bit of discomfort, and you know, we don't. We want to be. We want to be challenged. I mean, anything, any growth, any personal growth, whether it's emotional, physical, we need discomfort, right? I mean, that's what causes us to to evolve and get better. You know, that's. Uh, and I guess I didn't ask a question with that. Now, getting ready to wrap up here, doctor. As with your experience, how do you work out? Now that you, you, you've written the book, you've been an orthopedic surgeon for years, what's your approach to exercise that's kept you able to play forever? Do something every day. It doesn't matter so much what it is. Just be sure to do something every day. Get your heart rate up. You know, Do the things that cause you pleasure and fun and also help you 
become a better athlete and be fitter. So it's seven days a week. And the reason is because when you do that, you become addicted to the testosterone, the endorphins, the pheromones, the sweat, that whole feeling. And so once you're addicted, you then miss it if you didn't get your workout in or your sport play in. If you do it just two or three times a week, you don't quite build that addiction the same way you do when you do something every day. And if I were to give one simple bit of advice, which is what we do for our post-op patients, what we do for all our athletes who we work with, just do it every day. And, and you'll find you'll be frustrated with yourself when you miss it and you'll excel by doing that. Well, that's another thing. I love that because, and I'm smiling. For listeners, you can't tell how big I'm smiling because one of the things that I teach fitness professionals is we're drug dealers. Is that's fundamentally what we do? Is we're drug dealers. You, you, you mentioned the endorphins, we we dopamine, serotonin, adenosine, and what's the uh, I always the cannabinoids, right? We have our own internal cannabinoid system, our our uh, endogenous cannabinoid system. That that's our pain reliever system. So I, I love that because we can control that forever. Now, is there anything else that you'd like to share from Play Forever before we uh, before we log off? Any, any questions that maybe I didn't address? Yes, certainly for your older athletes. Um, you know, 80% of the people who have been told that they need a knee replacement don't. And we've learned that there are other alternatives. There are biologic replacements where we can put meniscus back in. There are partial knee replacements, which makes the knee feel more normal. Or if we have to do a full knee replacement, we can use a new technology with robotic control where the body grows into the implant so we don't have to use cement. And I just saw one of my patients that I did a full knee replacement on four years ago. He's been running 30 miles a week every week for the last four years. He's just competed for the over 70 group in the Portland Coast race. And uh, so we've been encouraging our athletes, even with knee replacements and partial knee replacements, to return to the sports they love. And using newer technology, we can help them play forever that way. The old advice of go home and rest your knee and wait for your knee replacement, or if you've had your knee replacement, you know, protect it, don't wear it out, we think is really wrong because we've never seen a knee replacement worn out from sports the way we're doing them now. Wow. That's that. that the, yeah. The robotic stuff really is. Do you think at some point we'll be, we'll be, we'll be cybernetic? I mean, at some point we'll have an integrated robotic part in our body. We have integrated parts now. They're, they're generally not um, electrified in a sense, but the implants we're putting in, your body's growing into it. So you and the implant are becoming one. And so, uh, you know, we think our goal is to help you become fitter, faster, stronger than you've been in years, no matter what it takes. And then you control your you control your new knee then from the app on your phone, right? If you need <laughs> if you need a little more strength, a little more power. Now, final final question, doctor. Do you do any voiceover work? Because as I'm listening to your voice, you sound like you have the perfect voice for radio or voiceover work. Have you ever done any voiceover work before? I never have. <laughs> All right, just give me that feedback. Well, how can people get more information? Uh, Dr. Kevin Stone, the author of Play Forever, How to Recover from Injury and Thrive. I love the book because this is such an important concept of we want to stay fit, we want to stay active. How can people get more information about what you're doing and what you do at your clinic? So at stoneclinic.com, they'll find out all all this information. Play Forever is on Amazon or at stoneclinic.com, either one. You know, if they're interested in the research, we have a public nonprofit research foundation called stoneresearch.org. Either way, they'll find out information about all the things we're talking about. And our goal is to keep them playing and help inspire them. And uh, you do a great service by communicating thoughts about staying fitness, staying fit and, uh, and I appreciate that very much. 
Well, thank you, doctor. It's a pleasant conversation. And for listeners, I'll have Dr. Stone and the Stone Clinic's information and links to play forever down below because that is the whole goal of the podcast is to help you stay fit and be active for as long as you want. So, doctor, thank you for your time today. I really appreciate it. Been a pleasure. Hey, as I said, if you want the two resources, no matter what age you are, if you're in your 20s, if you're in your 70s, if you want the two resources to really help you leverage the next number of years of your life, I, I pick up Play Forever, pick up Ageless Intensity, my book, and between our two books, between what Dr. Stone wrote and what I wrote, you will have more than what you need to be able to live a long, healthy, productive life well, well, well into your later years. And and that was an interesting sidebar, right? You have these people coming on. I, I interviewed um, a doctor from, oh, he's blank, I'm blanking my name, a doctor from uh, Holland a couple months ago talking about that he thinks longevity science, we can get to being 100, 140, 150 years old. And as Dr. Stone said, that's a legitimate question. Would we want to live that long? How would society support if all of a sudden 8 to 12, maybe 8 to 15% of the population is now living to 130, 140, 150 years old? What's that going to do to housing? What's that going to do to our workforce? What's that going to do to healthcare? And those are all legitimate questions. And at some point, I would like to find a somebody who I could speak with about that, maybe a futurist. Maybe, I don't know if that would, an ethicist, if that's the right thing, but what are the ethics of living, of, of trying to extend the lifespan? I mean, right now, the human lifespan in the United States is in the late 70s, I think 78, 79 years old. And, and the science between, we're looking at robotic parts, as we talk about, we're looking at platelets, we're looking at stem cells, we're looking at a lot of cool things that really could extend and add years to our life. And the, and the question becomes, is that a good thing? Is that something we want to do? I'm going to try to get that answer for you and try to find one or two people I can interview on that topic alone. Why would we want to extend our life so long? This was a fascinating conversation. Play Forever is a great resource, well-written, and coming from an orthopedic surgeon who's been at both Harvard and Stanford and you heard his credentials, you pick it up. Honestly, I don't, I don't, I'm not that emphatic about that many of my guests, but I'm going to tell you. Pick up a copy of Play Forever, even if you get the audio version or get the Kindle version. I mean, hey, you heard his voice. I could sit there and listen to Dr. Stone. He has that great radio announcer voice. For more information, you go to PeteMcCallFitness.com. That's PeteMcCallFitness.com. You can sign up for my mailing list there. Email me if you have any questions or comments, Pete at PeteMcCallFitness.com. Hey, really, I, I do appreciate your taking the time to listen in. It's an honor. It really is an honor to bring you interviews like this. And I really, I I want to take your time seriously by bringing you good content. And as always, thank you for stopping by. I do look forward to having you join me for future episodes of All About Fitness.